0: Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. In her State of the City address, Mayor Erin Mendenhall announced plans to fund a new approach to affordable housing. It's a cooperative model, and I'm curious about it. So I called up the program's director to get the details in the simplest terms. Listen up, because you might be eligible. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Ashley Atkinson, co-director of the Perpetual Housing Fund. Can you believe that some people don't find the ins and outs of housing policy exciting? <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> I cannot believe that.
0: What excites you about it?
1: I have loved housing development for years. I worked in banking and financing right out of college, and I would walk on site to some of the houses and Uh, multi-family projects we were financing. And I was like, I need to do this.
0: (laughs) I love this as your calling.
1: (laughs) I guess you could say it's my calling.
0: Well, you and I are going to do our best today to make this Sound as exciting as I I really do think it is. We're here to talk about the Perpetual Housing Fund, which is a little broccoli, but I trust you, you're gonna take us through it in a way that makes sense for everyone. So can you tell me about this project that some people are calling the next big thing in housing? What is it?
1: So the Perpetual Housing Fund is a nonprofit developer dedicated to creating equity building and profit sharing opportunities for Utahns who currently can't afford a home. What does that mean? So we hope to do this in several different ways in the future. But the program that's been in the news that's all the buzz right now um, is a model that it pairs LIHTC subsidies with resident profit sharing. So basically, we are trying to get the profits generated by the building back into the hands of the residents. Okay. What's LIHTC? LIHTC is low-income housing tax credits. Okay. It's a federal subsidy that that developers use in order to offer more affordable rents to low and moderate income individuals and families. So what would this look like
0: for an average tenant who's living in one of these buildings?
1: So PHF will develop a multifamily building, uh, very similar to a traditional development. And then we will use the LIHTC funding on the projects. And that allows us to charge lower rents and make it more affordable to people making um, 25 to 60% of area median income. Okay. Just to give you context on that, 60% area median income in 2022 in Salt Lake was about $43,000 a year for an individual, or for a family of four, that was about $61,000 a year in 2022. Okay. So the tax credit investor comes in as the project's equity or down payment, and then we get a loan to finance uh, the remainder of the building. Okay. So the residents pay rent like in a typical building and then expenses like management, maintenance, insurance and property taxes all get paid. And then the mortgage payment gets paid. From there, there is extra money. And that is typically given back to the investors. That's how investors and developers make money is from the extra cash flow from the building. So in a PHF project, that's where it's different. the money at the end of the year is to only 25% is coming back to PHF so that we can keep going. And the 75% extra that's left at the end of the year, that goes right back to the tenants. So if there is $200,000 in that pool at the end of the year, and there are 200 units, then each tenant is getting a $1,000 rent rebate at the end of the year. Okay. So
0: basically, because the developer is a nonprofit, basically, the Perpetual Housing Fund, what that 75% of the profit from developing affordable housing, that normally a developer would eat up as their profit would be going back to the tenants after the mortgage is paid on the building, not as profit. So basically, this is not like a money making scenario for developers. Exactly. Got it. So as a tenant in this building, then I'm kind of a shareholder, a stakeholder, right? Like it's almost like a cooperative Is that right?
1: In a way, I wouldn't say difficult about this model, but that is not ideal with the model is that along with the cash flow that you're receiving annually, we are also sharing in the building appreciation and the debt reduction that comes as we pay down the mortgage. Um, Unfortunately, that takes maybe 15 years before we can refinance and realize that. So at the end of 15 years, Or whenever we can refinance the building, everyone that's lived in the building, even if they've moved out since, will get their share of the appreciation of the building as the value increased over the life of the project. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, it kind of makes
0: you as a tenant a bit of an investor in the way that, like, I don't know if you write a Christmas song and then they play it 10 years later, you get a small check, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit like owning stock.
0: Right, so if I live in the building for a year and then I move out, because I will say like as a renter, I feel like I'm always on the move, but maybe that's because there just aren't a lot of stable renting options. Um, But if I live in the building for a year and then I move, I don't lose my like equity or my stake. Like I might still get a check or a direct deposit years from now. That's like my little portion.
1: Exactly, and what we're doing to make that a little bit better for the tenants is we're going to create some kind of line of credit that the tenants can pull from. So if you live there for two years and then you wanted to go back to school or you wanted to put a down payment on a house, we won't be able to give you the full amount that you probably earned at that point, but we will have a vehicle there that you can come and take a portion with no with no repayment or no interest on that portion of your equity. So for qualified events, like I just described, so that you aren't pulling that money out of pocket or paying high interest to go back to school or start a business or if you have a medical emergency.
0: I think this is really interesting and I'm dying to know why it's never been explored before.
1: I think it's complicated (laughs) as um, we're sitting here trying to explain it. But I think a nonprofit developer has to be involved or a developer that's willing to not profit as much off of some of their units. It doesn't make the developer much money. Obviously we're giving it back to the tenants. Um, another reason why it probably hasn't been done before is because with low income housing tax credits, it's meant to be a rental subsidy and it's not extremely friendly. That's why you don't see LIHTC condos because the federal subsidy doesn't mm. allow for ownership. Okay. Interesting, because that does answer one of my
0: questions about this project. I feel like we hear in this city in particular complaints from a lot of renters who would like to see more condos. Like not everyone wants to buy a single family home and shovel sidewalks and mow a lawn or or even needs that much space or wants it. Like communal living can be really nice. And I was going to ask you, like, why develop more rental units? Why not develop condos in this way
1: we actually hope to develop condos oh. the perpetual housing fund does hope to develop condos in the future condos are extremely tricky because of the liability around them so in utah if a home builder builds a home they have a one-year construction defect um, warranty period basically so after a year if something goes wrong the builder is mostly off the hook compared to condos, it is a much longer time period and insurance companies are very scared of that. So if you go and build a condo project, the contractor, the developer, the architect, the engineers involved all have to get special insurance. Sometimes you can't even get that insurance and if you do, it's extremely costly. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it adds a significant amount of money to a condo project. And then the tax ramifications of a condo project for most developers um, are a lot worse than doing apartments. So it's mostly financial and also liability.
0: The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. And be one in a class of 19, not 100. I guess this is like more of a philosophical issue that I have with our housing crisis. I don't know. I guess I just feel like someone who makes 60% of area median income should be able to own a home.
1: We agree. And that's why we're doing that. And they could even five, 10 years ago, they could own a home. And the financial stability that comes with that is just gone for so much of Utah's population. And that unfortunately, that portion just keeps growing as things become more unaffordable. Are there any like kinks to this program that are already
0: kind of starting to come to
1: pass? The biggest kink is what I just described is unfortunately, we can't get the money get the bigger portion of the money into the tenant's pockets immediately. Um, But like I said, we're working on a equity line of credit that should be able to make that easier. If a tenant needs that money quickly.
0: I want to know what it took to launch this program, because I understand that the bureaucracy around housing between city and state and county partners is intense. Where? is all of this investment coming from?
1: So we have some impact investors involved. They wanna invest in Salt Lake's community or Utah's community. um, And we're willing to take lower returns Mm -hmm. to do that. As we talked about earlier, Salt Lake City has announced uh, an investment in us. I think that everyone in the community can see that housing is becoming a more and more intractable problem Mm -hmm. for Utah. And so I think that there, there is a lot, of, a lot of hope and a lot of um, money being put behind finding good solutions to this problem. How soon can we start seeing these buildings and, and where? We hope to get the first couple um, in the ground this year, 2023. And we are planning on starting with one on the east side and one on the west side as our first two projects. How many units are we looking at in each of these buildings? In the first two buildings, one will probably be larger with um, anywhere from 200 to 300 units. And the other project will be a bit smaller, probably 20 to 30 units. You mentioned that
0: one of these buildings would likely be on the west side of the city. And of course, you know, there is a lot of concern in this community about gentrification displacing our neighbors. What's the pitch for people who might see this as an effort as more apartment development in a city with a displacement crisis.
1: So our hope is that our projects won't be displacing anyone within the communities. The lower rents will offer the current community members just another option for housing, and hopefully that option can create them a nest egg. We plan to combine many of our projects with public amenities, so putting daycares in the bottom or retail spaces that benefit the entire community, maybe office spaces for impact-focused nonprofits or other businesses. So we hope that our projects will benefit the surrounding communities, and we also will ask for the public's input on these projects. So we don't want to come in and tell communities what they need. We want to work with them and we don't want any displacement coming from from our projects.
0: How will people know if they're eligible for this program? It seems like you'll need to run a pretty big communications
1: campaign to get the word out. So we have a website specifically for residents. It's phfutah.org. More information on that is coming soon. We're working hard to send the message in a very clear way of what people are getting and what people are getting into. People can sign up. There is a place to subscribe so that they can hear about when our projects will be coming online. And to qualify for a LIHTC project is just like if you qualify for any other LIHTC project, we won't have additional requirements on top of that. So it's basically a wait list right now. Yes, we'll figure out if it's a lottery system or how we want to do that. But the best way, if you get on our subscription list, then you'll have the information as soon as it becomes available.
0: I think it's important that you bring up the application process because one of the things that I've learned, again, renting is that There are a lot of barriers to securing housing besides cost, like you need a guarantor maybe, or if you don't have impeccable credit, um, you need someone to vouch for you in the form of a guarantor. Down payments can be really high. How will this kind of stuff be handled? Like,
1: is this application going to be cumbersome? So it is more cumbersome for a LIHTC application than a traditional apartment application. And that's just because of the income qualifications that you have to prove that you are making a certain income. It's not nearly as cumbersome as applying for a mortgage and you don't have to save for the down payment or find anyone to come and guarantee the mortgage for you. But it is possible that there will
0: be people who don't make enough to qualify for this project. Is that right? Like it's it's meeting kind of a specific spot.
1: I guess that if you made less than the 25% AMI technically, permanent supportive housing projects are really the right fit for people that need really deeply affordable house, um, housing. There's probably a better product for people like that. And I, a lot of developers are developing a lot of that housing in the city. Okay, so this is anywhere
0: from 25 to 60% of area median income.
1: Yep, yeah, that's the LIHTC projects, and we're hoping that our projects will also include up to 120% um, in other types of units, because we really want true mixed income projects.
0: Well, last question, Brio. How do you view this program in the grand scheme of our housing crisis? Like, is this the silver bullet? Is this a piece of the puzzle?
1: I think it's a piece of the puzzle, and I hope that it can grow into a really big piece of the puzzle. I think that there is a place for this in a lot of projects. I'm hoping we, we've we actually have had for profit developers reach out to us really excited about this, wanting to help with the housing crisis. and. Um, we're an open book. We would love to see people copy this. And if they don't want to copy it, we would love to see people set aside portions of their their market projects for PHF. So yes, I think it's a piece of the puzzle. And I'm hoping that it is a big enough piece of the puzzle that it can make a, a pretty big dent in Salt Lake City and in Utah's housing crisis. That is an
0: more optimistic view of developers than I think I've ever heard presented around our housing crisis, (laughs) Ashley. (laughs) Where does that optimism come from? Really just feedback?
1: Yeah, honestly, it's been really pleasantly surprising at how much outreach we've received and people saying we want to help. I think it's a brand new concept and I hope that people will want to copy it. Ashley Atkinson,
0: co-director of the Perpetual Housing Fund, Congratulations on getting this off the ground. I'll be really curious to see how this evolves. Thanks for your time.
1: Thanks, Allie. Thanks for having me. The Department of
0: Alcoholic Beverage Services Commission met last week, and it was an absolute gauntlet per usual because the DABS can only grant one bar license for every 10,200 people in Utah. Four businesses were competing for one license this time around, and after much debate, commissioners landed on two finalists, Bout Time in Bluffdale and Fisher Brewing in Salt Lake. As they say on Law & Order, these are their stories. Fisher Brewing wants a bar license because they just expanded their location on 800 South to an event space. You probably noticed the construction next door. Most weddings or parties don't just want beer and wine, so a liquor license is necessary for the space to take off. Now, about time, they want to open a bar in Bluffdale because currently the South Valley city of 19,000 people doesn't have a bar at all, not one. So their case was, come on, guys, give the people what they want. And the commissioners sided with them. About time in Bluffdale got the coveted sole available license because the city is currently... And I quote, underserved. Great pun. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. I'm glad we had this conversation about housing today because throughout the rest of the week, we're focusing on a related topic. I'll be talking with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, as well as mayoral candidates Rocky Anderson and Michael Valentine about one of Salt Lake's most pressing issues, homelessness. Homelessness. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Bye.